0: The reading is John 20, starting at verse 1 to 23. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself. "'separate from the linen. "'Finally, the other disciple, "'who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. "'He saw and believed. "'They still did not understand from Scripture "'that Jesus had to rise from the dead. "'Then the disciples went back to their homes, "'but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. "'As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb "'and saw two angels in white.' seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you.' And with that he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.' This is God's word.
1: Let's bow our heads and pray. Ask for God's help. God, our Father, we bow before you. We bow before the Lord Jesus. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to enable me to preach faithfully, to enable us all to respond with obedient faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you uh, just look back on the left-hand page to John 19 and verse 28? Uh, This week I'm going to be preaching um, at something through John 18, 19, and 20. So I've been immersing myself in the way John tells the story of the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and then the beginning of the resurrection of Jesus. And in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus hangs on the cross and John says, later, knowing that all was now completed. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And in verse 29, they give him a little bit of uh, wine vinegar just to, to give him some moisture in his dry mouth. And in verse 30, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And if you read John's Gospel, you discover that what Jesus is saying is not "I'm finished," but "the work that I came to do is finished." The good shepherd has died for the uh, the, the sheep. Uh, I've died as the sacrifice, the Passover Lamb, as the sacrifice for the people of God. I've come to do the rescue job that God sent me to do. But the question is: Had he finished, or had he failed? If you had been in Jerusalem that first Saturday and you'd gone round having a look at what was going on in Jerusalem, you would have said to yourself, it looks to me as though this is business as usual. It's a normal Passover, just like Passover's for many years before. There are crowds, there are conversations, there are meals. There doesn't seem to be anything changed at all. There are some people who are sad, the disciples huddled together in a, in a, a, behind locked doors, sad. Other people who are joyful, Jesus' enemies joyful. But otherwise, everything just carries on as normal. And it looks as though Jesus has not fin- completed anything. He has failed. And then chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Many centuries before... There had been, in the language of Genesis 1, the first day of a week when the world hovered between darkness and light, when the Spirit brooded over the face of the waters, and when God said, let there be light, and the ordered creation, the world as we know it came into existence. And now again, John says, early on the first day of another week. And he stresses that the day on which all this happened that he's going to describe was the first day of the week. Glance on to verse 19. He says, on the evening of that first day of the week. He needn't have said that. He could have just said that evening. But it's clearly important that this is the first day of a week. And we shall discover that this first day is a day... Comparable to the day on which the creation of the universe started, in the language of Genesis 1, in that dramatic language. And that this day here, that we're considering, is the breaking into this old creation of a new creation. And it is the beginning of a new era. And when Jesus said it is finished, he was declaring the end of the old story. And yet all we see at the beginning, in verse 1, is a woman walking to a tomb. Mary Magdalene going to the tomb while it's still dark. There are other women with her, but John's camera focuses on this one woman, and we shall see why a little later. Just a woman walking, sadly, to a tomb as early as she dares. She walks in that in-between time, which is neither clear light nor deep darkness. She has no idea what has happened Because it has happened. The cross, lots of people saw it. There were witnesses. The cross was something Jesus did. It was an action that Jesus did. He gave himself up. The resurrection, nobody sees it. You read all the four Gospels. Nobody sees the resurrection happen. And the resurrection is more like a consequence than an action. It is, in a sense, the consequence of that Friday. Plenty of evidence that it happened. The empty tomb, the appearances of the risen Lord, the different occasions and places and times, the variety of witnesses, the inconsistencies of all other explanations. But John's main focus is not on the evidence for it, but on the significance of it. And I want to take these first three passages, verses 1 to 9, verses 10 to 18, and then verses 19 to 23. And I want us to learn from the first nine verses, the beginning of the story, that the resurrection means the vindication of the Son. We'll go through the story in a moment. Just, just have a glance, though, if you will, at verse 9. Always be suspicious when translators put a verse in the Bible in brackets. Because verse 9 is the punchline. It is the most important verse of this first section. Where, where John says they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And the punchline of this first little bit is John saying, we later realized that what happened that first Easter Sunday morning should have been no surprise to us at all. But if you read verses 1 to 8, as we're about to, you'll see that verses 1 to 8 are full of running and puzzlement and near panic, And uh, and John says at the end, you know, we really needn't have worried. So verse 1, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. She sees that the stone has been removed from the entrance. So she starts running and she runs to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one called the one Jesus loved, that is Jesus' best friend, almost certainly John the Gospel writer. His, his, he loves to keep himself anonymous like that. She runs and she gasps, verse 2. They, I don't know who they are, but they, somebody, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And, and, and we, that is Mary and the other women with her, we don't know where they've put him. There's panic in her voice. There's a sort of breathlessness about it. So verse 3, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb and both of them were running. And this was not a gentle trot listening to their iPods. This was a panic-filled run as they as they head off for the tomb. And uh, this lovely little description um, that, that, that John the Gospel writer says, the other disciple, that's me, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Isn't it lovely? In years to come, nobody's going to remember that the wrong university won the boat race today. <laughs> nobody's going to remember that in years to come. But, but John says to, to, to Peter, you remember that race when we raced for the tomb? And uh, I got there first. I'm going to put it in my gospel so nobody, <laughs> will, nobody will ever forget. Anyway, um, John gets there first. Verse 5. He, he bends over and he looks in. He doesn't go in, but he looks in. And he sees the strips of linen. We, we met them at the burial in chapter 19, verse 40 uh, wrapped the body um, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus they wrapped the body in strips of linen and he sees the strips of linen but he doesn't go in and then uh, verse 6 Simon Peter who was behind him arrived um, huffing and puffing because he's not so fit but Simon Peter typically sees the tombs you know the stones open he just goes straight in that's so typical of Simon Peter To do that he just goes straight into this this tomb. And he saw, verse 6, the strips of linen lying there and he sees something else, verse 7. He sees the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head and he sees the cloth that they'd wound around Jesus' head folded up by itself separate separate from uh, the linen. Strange. Different. if you know John's gospel, don't turn to it now, but later have a look at chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you see where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus comes out from the tomb with his arms and legs wrapped in the strips of linen and his head bound in the cloth. And Jesus has to say to them, unwrap him and let him go so that he can get on with life. This was different. This was a body that had had gone through the linen and through the headcloth this was a transformed physicality this was a, this was something that was real and bodily and physical but transformed it was not ghostly sometimes we, we we think jesus resurrection body was like a sort of ghost it was not ghostly jesus body could go through the cloth the the strips of linen and the headcloth and through the stone uh, before the stone was rolled away, and through doors. Not because Jesus' resurrection body was thinner than our physicality, but because his resurrection body was more solid. And he went through the material in this universe, rather as, a, as in our case, a solid body would go through smoke or a cloud. And, 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 and uh, Simon Peter sees that, but he doesn't know what to make of it. And then verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just in case anyone forgot, also went inside. He saw and believed. Not believed that the tomb was empty. That was obvious. They'd seen that from the beginning. He saw. And this disciple, Jesus' closest friend, who is telling the gospel story, says, in effect, he says, I saw, I saw the way the grave clothes lay, And it dawned on me that he'd risen. He'd said he would rise, and I realized that he had risen. And it's all quite frenetic at that point, and until that point. And then John writes later, he says, verse 9, they still didn't understand, and he's including himself, they didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what's he saying? He's saying later on, we realized, he said, I, I understood from the evidence of my eyes that Jesus had risen from the dead. Later on, I realized from the scripture, that is from the Old Testament, that he was bound to rise from the dead. Where in the Old Testament do you find that? Well, you can rootle around the Old Testament and you might find the odd little thing which looks as if it says that. Um, but rather than looking for odd little things that seem you might, if you're clever, think that they, they, they prophesy the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead... Yeah, how about this? How about saying the whole of the Old Testament says Jesus must rise from the dead? Because the whole of the Old Testament says that there is a God who is a judge. The whole of the Old Testament says that the wicked will be destroyed. The whole of the Old Testament says that when a man uh, uh, obeys God and loves God and is faithful to God and is righteous and upright in every way, then God is in relationship with them and they cannot die and stay dead. And we later realized that whereas so far in human history everybody who dies was a sinner, so of course they could stay dead. It would be perfectly right if they did. We later realized that this man who had done no sin was bound to rise. The Old Testament taught us that. All the basic truths of God and a world in which there's any kind of justice taught us that. What an extraordinary thing to say about Jesus What an extraordinary thing to say at somebody's funeral, to be able to say at somebody's funeral, you know they're bound to rise from the dead because they were perfectly good, and I know there's justice in the universe. John says that's what we should have have said when Jesus died. We should have grasped that. Later we understood that, and the resurrection is the vindication of the son. I remember once being at a dinner with a a group of high-powered scientists. I'm not quite sure why I was there, but they were all fellows of the Royal Society and professors of this and that, and they were, they were terribly clever, like some of you guys. And it was a sort of science and faith um, thing, and they were discussing the resurrection. And I thought, well, what am I going to say, because I'm not a scientist? So I said, um, you know, I, it seems to me that uh, the resurrection of Jesus is not an abnormal event. It is precisely what we ought to have expected if there's any justice in the universe. They looked a little bemused. It didn't seem to be a terribly helpful comment for the, for the science-faith discussion. But I think it's true that if a perfectly sinless and righteous man dies and there is any justice in the universe, he's bound to rise. He is bound to rise. And the resurrection is the vindication of the Son. And then second, the resurrection means access to the Father. It means that our God is now our Father. Now, here is a deep human need. Some of you may remember the actor Alec Guinness. He was a famous character actor. He was Obi-Wan Kenobi in um, uh, Star Wars, and uh, he was uh, Colonel Nicholson in The Bridge on the River Kwai. When he died, I read his obituary, and his mother was a kind of high-class prostitute, and he never knew who his father was. And in his autobiography, he said, I have to admit that my search for a father has been my constant speculation, For 50 years. And human beings, fatherhood matters to us. The German preacher Helmut Thielicke, preaching uh, at a time of Allied bombing at the end of the Second World War, he said the history of the world is the story of humanity without a father. Or so it seems. That's what it feels like. And we're going to see in this next beautiful episode that the resurrection means access to God as father. So verse 10, the disciples go off to their homes, that is Peter and the other disciple, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Loud, noisy, vocal crying. Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, the moment we say Mary Magdalene, we think about all sorts of rubbish. So Mary Magdalene, um, people, people paint her with loose hair, they, they suggest, they always sexualize her, They write books about her, The Magdalene Legacy, The Secret Teachings of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Christianity's Hidden Goddess, Mary Magdalene, Bride in Exile. She's even featured in an episode of The (laughs) X-Files. And in 2005, she was named by Newsweek as the It Girl of our times. I'll tell you what we do know about her. There is no evidence in the New Testament that she was sexually immoral. We don't know what age she was. There's absolutely no evidence of that at all. I'll tell you what we know about it. You can look it up later at the beginning of Luke chapter 8. The beginning of Luke chapter 8 says that when the disciples and Jesus traveled around, there was a group of wealthy women who went around and, and provided for them from their wealth and their means. And Mary Magdalene was one of those. And, and Luke tells us that, that Jesus had cast out from Mary Magdalene seven demons. And I don't know what exactly that means... But given the significance of seven in the Bible, it must have been awful. John Calvin says that um, Jesus had brought uh, her out of the lowest hell. Whatever it was that had afflicted Mary Magdalene, it was awful. And Jesus had rescued her from it, and she never forgot it. And she was devoted to Jesus. You see her in chapter 19 at the cross with a little group of women. Uh, Mark tells us she followed the burial party to the tomb. And here she is, last at the cross, first at the grave, devoted to him. And here she is, she stands. Do you see that in verse 11? She stood outside the tomb. And where you stand in John's Gospel is significant. If you read the account of Jesus' arrest, you'll see that Judas stood with the arrest party. That was his loyalty. You'll see that Simon Peter, when he denied Jesus, stood with with the high priest's servants round the fire. And Mary stands at the tomb. That is her loyalty. Love makes her linger. And finally in verse 11, she does what she obviously hasn't yet done. She bends over and looks into the tomb and she sees two angels in white at the head and the foot of where Jesus' body had been. Perhaps a reminder of the two cherubim either side of the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant in that symbolism. Uh, 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 Jesus crucified between two thieves, risen between two angels. And they say to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she says, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. It's intensely personal. And then verse 14, maybe she sees a little signal from the angels that there's someone behind her, and she turns round, and she sees Jesus. For the first time in human history, a creature of this age sees the man of the age to come. It's a wonderful moment. But like the disciples on the lake in chapter 21, and like the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, she doesn't recognize him. And he repeats the angel's question Woman, why are you crying? Who is he you're looking for? Looking for in the tomb? And she thinks he's the gardener. Tertullian in the second century says. Um, why should she think it was the gardener? Well, maybe the gardener was worried about his lettuces and all the, all the visitors coming to see the tomb. So maybe the gardener might have removed him. But anyway, she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Mary was a woman of me, means. No doubt she had servants. She could have done that. She could have taken the body and, and reburied it. And then verse 16. She hears the word that will change her world forever, Mary. Jesus must often have called Mary as the other disciples by their names before, but this was different. This was the voice of the Good Shepherd who knows his sheep by name, and whose sheep recognize his voice, Mary. She doesn't recognize him by his face, but she recognizes him by his voice, and it is a picture of something that's been happening over the centuries since. When I was 17, I now realize that's what happened to me, that the Lord Jesus said, Christopher. Not that I had any kind of vision or anything like that, but that's what happened when I came to faith in Christ. The Good Shepherd, who knows his sheep by name, named me. And I heard his voice and responded to him. If you're a Christian, you can substitute your own name there. Not physically, literally like that. But spiritually and really. She hears her name, Mary, and she turns towards him, verse 16, and she calls him what no doubt she'd often called him, Rabboni, my own dear teacher. And here's the surprise if you and I were making a musical of this, this would be the moment for the Jesus is my boyfriend song. Isn't that right? I mean, if you were Andrew Lloyd Webber, you're just asking for that, aren't you? It's the time for Jesus is my boyfriend song. And we don't know whether Mary reaches, whether she does embrace him or whether she reaches as if to embrace him. But the extraordinary surprise is Jesus says don't. Isn't that a surprise? It seems the most natural thing in the world, doesn't it? A disciple who is loyal to Jesus, who is grateful to Jesus, sees the risen Jesus, of course You want to embrace the risen Jesus. And he says no. And he says no because there is something better. And he says this. He says, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet returned to the Father. I'm going to ascend to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, that is, the disciples, and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father. And that's the new thing. My God and your God. God the Father is Father to Jesus by nature from all eternity. But he says that God the Father who is Father to Jesus by nature from all eternity is from this time on Father to every disciple of Jesus by adoption and grace. My Father and your Father. And at that moment he announces to Mary that because of the cross, the resurrection demonstrates that that men and women who trust in Jesus now have access to the Father. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And all down history, there have been human beings who've come to that realization. I was reading a lovely description of a high-ranking Muslim woman called Bilka Sheikh. And she tells how she she slowly came to faith in Christ. And there's a lovely moment where she tries praying to the Father. She says, oh, Father, my Father, Father God, And she says, Hesitantly, I spoke his name aloud. I tried different ways of speaking to him. And then as if something broke through for me, I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me, just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh, my Father God. And she came to that amazing realization. And if you're a Christian, you'll know what a wonderful thing it is to be able to address the father of Jesus as my father and your father. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thing? And Jesus says that to Mary. Mary thinks that the best she can do is to embrace her teacher. And her teacher says, no, there is something better. I'm going to my father and your father. So access to the father. But then we move to the evening. And a short little episode in the evening. And just as we might be thinking, this is all very nice Jesus has been vindicated, my sins are forgiven, Uh, I have access to the Father, we can just have a great big Christian love in and joy in and hooray, isn't this marvelous? And in the evening, he does something new. Look what he does. The evening of that first day of the week, this new creation day, the disciples are together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, And Jesus comes and he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. He'd promised them that, peace with God, harmony with one another. And after he said this, he showed them his hands, his nail-pierced hands and his side, pierced by the Roman spear. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Of course they were. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he does three things, ascending, A word about the spirit and a word about sins. First of all, ascending. He says, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus often spoken of himself as the sent one. I'm a man on a mission. My Father has sent me to do something. And I want to finish that work. And on the cross, he finished that work. And now he says, as the Father sent me, I send you. That doesn't mean that Christian people are to do everything that Jesus did. Sometimes when people discuss Christian mission, they use that text as a a way of saying Christian mission ought to do everything Jesus did. Christian mission ought to bring physical healing to people, for example. It cannot mean that because by the same logic, Christian mission would need to include not only exorcisms and raising the dead, but also walking on water, stilling storms, and feeding big crowds from picnic boxes. That's what it would have to mean if we had to do everything Jesus said. Now Jesus is saying, as the Father sent me and I did my mission out of loyalty and love to the Father, so I'm sending you to do your mission out of loyalty and love to me. And that's what Christian people have been doing ever since. And then he, he clarifies what the mission's about. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. He, he stands And this isn't just the 11 apostles here. We know from Luke's gospel there were others with them, besides Thomas wasn't there. So it was just a representative group of his church in embryo. The the risen Lord stands in the midst of his church and he he breathes, as it were. It's an acted parable. It's an anticipation of the day of Pentecost. He breathes and he says, receive uh, the Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. And they don't receive the Holy Spirit at that point They receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost later. But they remember that acted parable when he says receive the Spirit. And they're going to need the Spirit for the mission they're going to do. And the reason is this. The Spirit, who is God the Holy Spirit, is the one who alone can change the heart of a human being. Right back in John chapter 3, John uh, Jesus said, said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be born anew by the Spirit. And in chapter 4 and chapter 7, he uses water, living water, as an image of, 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 of the Spirit, of life, the life of God coming into the heart of a human being and changing them on the inside. And Jesus says to them, the mission you're going to do is a spiritual mission. It's going to be a mission that will change hearts. Sometimes when people discuss Christian mission, they use the buzzword, transformation. And they say Christian mission, sometimes people say Christian mission is aimed at transforming society or transforming structures of injustice and that kind of thing. And we need to be careful about that. Christian mission, the mission of Jesus is to change hearts. When men and women's hearts are changed by new birth, when people change, society begins to change and structures begin to change. But Christian mission is addressed to the heart. Christian mission is not saying, let's make the country a better country. Christian mission is saying, you need to be born again. You need to change in your heart. It is a matter of the spirit. And it is to do with sins. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. That cannot mean that only authorized priests have the authority to forgive the sins of individuals for two reasons. One is that the people present there were not just apostles. And and the, the Roman Catholic theory relies on the idea that they were apostles and that priesthood is passed on in an apostolic line. But the people there were not just apostles. Besides, Thomas the Apostle wasn't there. So it's a bit tough on him if that's what's going on. But the other reason is that in the rest of the New Testament there is no evidence... That any of the apostles or any Christian ever interpreted it that way. Now the way they understood Jesus, what Jesus meaning was this, that, 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 that repentance and the forgiveness of sins is preached in His name. That is to say, every Christian has the gospel authority of Jesus to declare to men and women, if you repent and trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you do not, they're not. It's a wonderful authority to say that, isn't it? To be able to say, if you repent and trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. And that's a marvelous thing, and that is Christian mission. So let me recap. The resurrection shows us that Jesus is vindicated, that he has achieved the work he came to achieve, that he has borne our sins, that we are forgiven if we trust him. It is the... It, it is the evidence that if we trust in Jesus, we have access to the Father. And the Father of Jesus is our Father. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it is, the, it, it is the evidence that Jesus sends us on the mission of the Holy Spirit. The mission to bring the good news of Jesus to others. To declare to men and women the forgiveness of sins in his name. And that is a wonderful thing as well. The resurrection is a wonderful day. And it is the proof that when Jesus said he had finished the work the Father sent him to do, he really had. Let's thank him and praise him for that. And let's be prepared to be part of Christian mission. Amen.